Hello everybody and welcome to the 142nd edition of the Frank and Stan chat. And for those of you watching on video, you'll notice that Stan's not with us this week. So uh, we have uh, Stan standing is probably. Uh, we always refer re re back to Susan. So hello, Susan Brickell, how are you? Hello, I'm fine. It's lovely to be here again, replacing Stan. Uh, it's <laughs> nice to see you. Nice for a chat on a Friday morning with bright sun again in Tudor. I know. I think this is, I think we've had you on as a guest two or three times. How many, how many times have you covered for Stan's absence? Um, so this is my second time um, being Stan and twice being a guest. So right. it's fourth, Which is not, fourth time. Not bad out of 142 editions. Yeah. So, uh, Stan's in uh, North Wales and uh, he uh, will be talking about an issue, I think, later. Um, and he's spoken to me this morning about it and he, he sends his regards to both of you. So uh, anyway, so Anne, Anne Marsh, you're back with us for your second visit. So uh, welcome back. Thank you very much, Frank. Delighted to be back. And it's obviously a shame Stan's not here, but absolutely lovely to meet Susan. <laughs> now, <laughs> so, now, yeah. You've been a guest here before and uh, I've known you and for, I don't know, it must be getting on for 10 years, I think. Um, but can you just explain um, how we know each other and the sorts of work that you're involved in? Yes, so we were introduced probably yeah, about 10 years ago, something like that, Frank, by a common a mutual colleague um, who was coming out to Teach First. And obviously you had um, strong connections with Teach First. And that colleague was working with us at the time, um, so in our business. So I run an organisation called Yippie App. We provide in-school and in-college and online now tutoring to schools and colleges. So we don't do any real private support with parents. It's not that sort of setup. We work directly with schools and colleges and have done for 10 years, so way before COVID and the National Tutoring Programme. Um, and we recruit and employ young people to deliver that support. So that's really our, our sort of USP, if you like. We work with school leavers, recent graduates, um, you know, typically people who can present as a peer mentor to schools and colleges. And therefore, you have a different kind of relationship with those students than, than you know, anybody else in school, really. Um, quite a lot of work we do is with schools that don't have six forms, where you just don't have that peer mentor type character, if you like, in school. And this is something that I felt uh, for a long time. And just to give a little bit of a, a flavour, my background is I was a maths teacher uh, for a number of years. And then went into accountancy, became a mom, did various other, other other things in my previous life, and then started Yippie App. You know, when I was coming back into the world of work, and I just could see the benefits of tutoring. So I think when you've been a maths teacher, you never get away from people asking you, you know, this person's <laughs> daughter, this person's son, can you help out? So I'd always had a, a toe in the water. I'd never set myself up as a private tutor or anything like that, really. But you know, family, friends, that sort of thing, I would help. Um, but I knew the benefits. You could see the benefits. It's so obvious when you're working one to one or with you know a very small group. You can you can see how you can make progress so quickly. Um, but then you bring into it this other element of peer mentoring as well, and it's just fantastic. You kind of get that real magic connection with students who really don't like a subject, but they really like that person they're working with, and they present very differently. As say, they very relatable, very cool. That's a very uncool word to use yeah. for young people. <laughs> you know, they. Can <laughs> that real connection and and so that's where we started um you know two tutors back in 2012 and now we have a team cohort of about 133 tutors wow. they tend to work with us more or less full-time they're all four five days a week typically they're typically on a gap year either between school and university or after university or now sometimes on a, on a sandwich year in university so we do have a number of those 
candidates. And really, it's just something which, you know, has taken a long time to kind of get going because it was a really neat thing when we started. But it is something which now has always captured the imagination or feels like it, it captures the imagination of people um, in school and leaders who want to come with a different approach. You know, there's so many leaders who have vision of a, a slightly different approach. And this is something that provides that. Right. It's funny because uh, I think I mentioned to you, uh, was it earlier in the week or last week, but I decided that I was going to write a, a short paper about how I'd sort of uh, how Northern Powers Partnership had tried to involve, um, well, get the tutoring program running uh, at the beginning of the first lockdown. And actually, mm-hmm. only when you described it there, uh, I think I've copied your approach <laughs> uh, and used it as my own. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'm really sorry. But actually, what happened was uh, Henry Morrison phoned me up. The, I think it was the first day of a lockdown, the first lockdown, and said, uh, Henry's the CEO of the Northern Powers Partnership. And he said, and he was quite clear, he said, this is going to hurt the most disadvantaged communities the most. So, you know, what are we going to do about it? I remember saying, what are we going to do about it? And the first thing I said to him was, well, there were two, there were two things. The, the first is, the, the most disadvantaged are probably not going to be very well connected. So they're going to have a problem getting online. And the second thing is what's going to happen when the kids go back? You know, I had this vision of them all being sort of rowdy. You know, I had visions of year 10s swarming around the place and everybody. But I felt as though there needed to be something which was more personal. And so you know, I had this idea of using undergraduates or graduates, recent graduates, and we got Sheffield Hallam on board and they created a grow mentoring program. Um, but actually, I think, Anne, all I've done is copied your approach. <laughs> so apologies for that. It's an excellent approach. So I'll be very <laughs> One of the things, though, I mean, I, Anne, I have to say, we, we connected uh, uh, when you were on before. I think there was some level of disappointment, wasn't there? I think, uh, and, and I explained this in the paper um about the fact that uh, the tutoring program became quite a centralized program and one that actually had within it an expectation about how best to do tutoring and and actually that made it difficult for you didn't it yeah i mean you know it's a subject that i find you know i'm happy to talk about it always but um you know it's, it was very difficult at the time so just to give a little bit of a summary of what happened so June 2020, the National Tutoring Programme was announced that this was going to happen. Obviously, children starting to get back into school about September. And, you know, we had been in existence for eight years at that point. You know, it was absolute. we do. This is exactly what we do in school tutoring. I wrote an open letter to the government saying, if you want help, come to me because there's not many <laughs> people do this. So if you want any advice and help and support setting it up, I'm, I'm your woman. You know, come and I'll be really open with what we do, how it works and so on. And, you know, see if we can help. And I had this real sort of vision of being able to help. It, it went to the EEF. And, you know, fair play to them, I think, in hindsight, I was very cross at the time, but in hindsight, I think, you know, they had a difficult job thrown into trying to work out how to do something they didn't really know how to do. And they must have had loads of voices, not much, you know, expertise in that sense. I think they accepted that when when they sort of, you know, um, didn't come didn't go again for the programme the next year. Um, and really, you know, it was something that, you know, we were very disappointed because we didn't get... Um, accepted onto the list first time and in fact you know it's very disappointing because only 33 providers did out of the whole country so how you know were those 33 tuition providers going to serve the whole country it was it was a nonsense and really and so that, that in the first year that that scheme I felt really floundered but not from a lack of intent it's just no, no. people not knowing what they were doing 
But so, how, just before you get onto that, how did that affect Yippia? Because actually, did that draw schools away from you towards them, or did you actually manage to maintain that relationship that you had? Were they were, were schools ignoring the EEF thirty odd and coming <laughs> to your, or was it actually quite hard to keep them on board? So it was a real, it's been a mixed bag because again, schools were all flailing around this new initiative, not quite knowing where to do and how to deal with it, and you know. We just thought we'd keep a, just a, a steady ship, you know, let's just take a breath, see what happens. Will our loyal schools, if you like, people who work with us for years, will they stay with us? Will they move away? You know, what will happen? So we basically went into it with a very open mind. And we found really that in terms of our reach, we pretty much doubled during the period, you know, in that first year, uh, in terms of the number of hours and number of tutors that we had on board and the amount of tuition we we're delivering. We did have some, obviously, in that first instance, they're looking at, I can't remember what the figure was now, but I think it was 60% or 40% or something of the invoice was paid for by the government, by a grant, if um, if you um, went with a tuition provider. But there were massive difficulties with this. There just wasn't enough tuition yeah. out there. There just wasn't, how can 33 serve the whole country? They just couldn't. So some people did, they tried and they got got with a, you know, the, a tuition company that they went with that was on the list. When I touched base with them later, talking about the next year, very many of them had been disappointed with the provision and they you know, were looking not to continue with that for whatever reason. You know, some were happy. That's great. You know, there are other good tuition providers out there. Other tuition providers are available. Um, but, you know, I, as I say, we kept our sort of core heart and soul exactly where we were. We did not deviate one inch from what we deliver and what we tried to do. We didn't badmouth people. We didn't rail against the scheme, particularly. You know, we, we just stayed as we were and we provided good tuition and more and more people. The, the real benefit during that period was people were talking about and recognised the need for exactly what you're talking about, Frank, that personal yeah. connection that people were, were really searching for. So even though they couldn't get it elsewhere, they were aware of it and they were aware that, you know, there may be options out there. So what always happens with us is that we don't really advertise big. We go by word of mouth. And so schools tell other schools and now schools are asking, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, and this is starting to now build into something. So for the first well, certainly the first two and a half years, it was literally of the business. It was literally me knocking on doors, knocking on doors, pop, knock back, have to knock back, have to knock back. By about year six, we've got a kind of, you know, fledgling kind of group of schools that we've worked with and so on. It was a slow build. Fast forward to 2020, boom, you know, the whole world is starting to look at this. And, and we are really well placed. We have some, such good systems, such a good setup, you know exactly what we're doing. So we can go into places and tell them how it works. Yeah. Not not ask, you know, not ask how. It's quite good, though, isn't it? Because it, it is flexible around what the needs of the school are as well. It isn't. I think yeah, that was yeah. one of the problems, wasn't it? I think of the tutoring programme initially there was a view that this is what you're getting. You know, where actually I think going back to the the work that I've done with Sheffield Hallam, there was very much co-production of this. It's, it's very much done with the schools about what is it you need? You know, what's the best way to provide that? You know, where's the best area of to focus in on? And I think that for me, Yippie Apps trying to meet the needs of the school rather than a perceived idea is, I mean, you know probably what's going to work best, but you still have that discussion with the schools. So the key thing about what we do, I, I agree. So the key thing we, about we, we do in that respect is we don't run a programme. We provide tutors into schools and let them, let's say they're young people, they're not going to come in and take over or anything like that. They come in and they will do the job that they need to do, which is engage and work with 
you know, small groups on that basis. So we don't come in with this sort of program idea. And the problem was, I guess, from the point of view of the, the quality that was being delivered, you know, it's obviously, as I say, good tuition providers out there. But there was a reason that I wrote that open letter. It's because I had eight years of experience of working with schools in this way. And it's not easy. You know, there was eight years of learnings there. It's not as easy as pop people in and just expect it to work. There's all sorts of context around it. And so that was why, you know, I, re- I was really sort of disappointed not to have been involved on that first yeah. run through. We, as I say, we're, we're very, very tailored in what we do. And it's, you know, we, we don't have a wholesalers we can go to and get tutors from. We recruit people who, you know, we see their skills and their, what they can bring to it. And everybody's unique. And schools who've worked with us for nine, 10 years, different tutor every year, they still get that same quality because what you're buying into is the quality of what we deliver in terms of training and ethos and the yeah. year that they have with us, you know, they tend to work with us for a full year on a gap year. You know, it's that, that that people really, really buy into. And then they have a great person who actually arrives with them. You know, it's that sort of thing. So has it tipped now? Do you think tutoring's to stay that this is part of the part of the landscape for, for schools now? Well, we're obviously very conscious of this because the funding lasts next year, 25% this year. So it is being yes. taped down. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of an evidence-based provision, evidence-based in, um, you know, initiative to, to sort of support students, you really can't do much better. I mean, it is such a fantastic initiative. You know, it's a really good way of meeting the needs that schools want. So I'd be really surprised having put such great efforts into building up what is the provision and building up companies to deliver this and so on? Because obviously three years down the line, there are more people who are geared up to doing it and understand and, you know, be able to work through and have, you know, good relationships with schools who like working with them. I'd be really surprised if the mood music went to, right, okay, you know, mm. scrap the record, we're off and, you know, doing something else now. That seems very odd, but you never know. Um, <laughs> yes, I don't know. Um, just a very quick word about I can just about Randstad. I don't like to talk about Randstad very much, but that year, just to sum up in a sentence, was a complete disaster. Um, I think from every point of view, that's why Randstad were you know let go, if you like, in the May um, to twenty twenty. But, but what was interesting, wasn't it, about um, they, they their tender was significantly cheaper. You know, it stood out as a bit of an outlier. Somebody should have been asking. Well, how are you doing that? You have no, you have no presence at all in this field. You know, how are you going to sort of undercut existing businesses who are doing this and have been doing it for a long period of time? Um, yeah. It seemed a, a weird. I mean, you, you, I, I don't really want to get involved in, you know, that procurement yes. process because you then, <laughs> oh, well, I wonder who was doing. Well, anyway, let's not go down that road. But it was a disaster, wasn't it? It was a disaster, but the slight sort of. <clears throat> turning point for us within that is when Randstad first took over they did a you know an open bid sort of thing you know you, you could bid as a provider we weren't successful on that first bid with Randstad either which was again very annoying but kind of you know we weren't that bothered at this point because we had lots of interest going on anyway um then it got to the November and they did another open bid because they just weren't getting people in and their their remit is to get lots of tuition companies in and actually tuition companies go well we don't need this anymore you know we're getting schools <laughs> into direct so we, but we went for it again because, you know, in theory, there's a bit of a pride at stake here. You know, we'd like to be on a, the scheme if we can, you know, that would be great. So we got it in November. We got a, approved as providers. But actually, by that time, we'd heard so much about how difficult it was day to day that we thought we're just not going to go there. We, we we owe it too much to the schools that we're right. working with to start sort of chasing things that aren't even there yet. So we'll, we'll, we'll not go forward with it. So we, we got approved, but we weren't actually contracted. 
So then fast forward to Randstad, obviously not then in charge and tribal coming in. We and we'd set up all our support for the year ahead coming, and it was it was just so funny because the, the tribal took over, and they were working with tuition providers like ourselves, quite a few, I think, probably you know, ten maybe more um, providers who had brilliant relationships with schools. But now the rules have changed. So over the summer, the rules have changed. So you can only get the funding if you are a tuition provider. And so what they then are in this situation with all these tuition providers who aren't actually official tuition providers and how do you get them on that quickly in time for September the 5th <laughs> you know they only took over on September the 1st so luckily we found out and had conversations with them beforehand and were able to sort of fast track through our process and because our process had already been approved yeah. by Ramsad but that doesn't transfer over automatically you know so it, it was a it was a, a bit of a mess but tribal were brilliant and I have to say you know hats off to them they've come in and as far as I can see, and we've not just been through that part of the process, we've had a review with them. The dialogue is what the difference is. It's just right. the other two providers just were, no, you're not on. Okay. <laughs> any, any reason for that? Any sort of something? Um, but tribal have been much more, right, let's make sure you are sort of fit. Fit the purpose. Yeah. And then yeah. if you, you know, if you have any sort of ongoing, we will have dialogue around that. And it's just so much better two way. Fabulous. Well, that's yeah. a positive way of ending what is quite a tortuous <laughs> journey. But I'm pleased to see <laughs> that Yippie Up are, are thriving uh, once again. Um, so, Anne, uh, Susan, let's move on to uh, what's caught your eye this week. You've been quite busy this week, haven't you? Um, I have, yeah. I've been at a conference this week um, for Heads and Chairs for one of the schools, um, which is a, a large multi-academy trust. So um, it's a really interesting conference, um, brings together, you know, lots of people to hear about how the trust's moving um, it, for over the next year and where it's been. Um, but I was already thinking about this um, to talk about um, when other incidents have, you know, come into the news this week about um, head teacher well-being, because I think a lot of the benefit of being at this conference is the conversations that go on outside the main sessions, which I spoke to a lot of head teachers, very experienced head teachers, very new head teachers, and lots of chairs of governors as well. Again, very new, very experienced. And um, I, I spoke to one um, uh, retired uh, executive head, um, you know, very, very experienced, the sort of person anyone would go to for advice. And we were talking about, you know, accountability and, you know, talking to people. And, and he said, who's asking the head teachers if they're OK? And and my retort as a chair of governors is always, well, that should be the chair of governors. But that doesn't necessarily no. always happen or always work. Um, this, this went on. We had, you know, a big, long chat about this with other chairs of governors about how it worked or how it didn't work. This was all in my head when the tragic news um, that that came out last night of um, uh, Ruth Perry, um, who um, a head teacher that has you know very sadly committed suicide, um, we we think that her family are saying after an Ofsted report. Um, obviously, I'm sure we all pass our condolences on to the family, friends, school, everybody um, connected with her, um, but. 
you know, it, it really brought home to me about, you know, the impact that not just Ofsted, you know, other accountability measures can have on our head teachers and and what we're doing. You know, I, I'm always of the mind that it can be a really, really lonely place being a head. Um, not all heads have people to talk to. Um, I, I do sometimes think that the, the trust system is is slightly better for that because there is a bit of a collegiality there are different there are other heads to talk to within your trust um my concern looking now at the la system is sometimes that there might not be if you're in competition with the school next door there might not be that um you know you might not want to go to that head teacher because of that um obviously you did a Frankenstein chat with the headrest people about their report and you know that that was really fantastic but you know this is an issue and it's going to carry on while while we have this Ofsted system I have to say where you know one day one snapshot one visit can have such an impact on um on somebody's career and you know, I I know recently lots lots of pets have been very affected by reports. Um, uh, I think somebody said on Twitter today they're they're the only educator's name on the report. Mm. Um, that that's really you know that's really tough, isn't it, to do that? Yeah, yeah. yeah so. I mean, I, I, uh, yeah, I. So just I'll say Stan contacted me before the, the the recording just to if we were going to talk about this to offer his condolences as well. But but actually I think um, it's as you said, uh, Susan, it's not just Ofsted, is it? Because there there are other. It's quite interesting actually during COVID um, when schools were not uh, when children were not sitting exams. There was no lead table. Yeah. There was no Ofsted. There was. The, the areas that I uh, support in the work that I do, phenomenal level of support for each other. Absolutely. You know, there was a, yeah. a real sense of camaraderie and people yeah. coming together. Um, and, and actually the, 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 fundamental important, the fundamentally important thing was that all the families had sufficient food, the children were cared for. And actually if that meant the school couldn't do it, somebody else down the road, another school would help out. Uh, yeah. But... I think we need to get to a position like that where there's a more collegiate feel to it. With I think the the competition element of it um, has got too big a grasp of yeah. the process. And uh, it was funny because I saw Adrian Lyons, who's been a guest here. He was another former HMI, um, and he reminded me that there was a, there was a framework which said that you can't be a, a, in the term outstanding school. You know, unless you've got clear evidence of supporting weaker schools in your community, and uh, you know, it could go as far as to say, you know, that a key element here is when a school does get inspected, and I hope they're not done in the way they're done now. Um, but actually, a key component is, well, what do the other schools think of you? <laughs> you because yeah. if actually all you're doing is dissing everybody else and taking yeah. all of their more, um, well, sort of higher attaining, slightly more ambitious, whatever kids are cut you're drawing them in at the detriment of other schools then to me that's not really improving that school that's that's just cherry picking isn't it really so I think there's something here about trying to get a feel 
for what how does the landscape look within the community and what role are different schools playing even if they belong to different trusts yeah we we did a session at the conference and it was only for chairs of governors and it was about are you a good neighbor and oh, right. and, and and that was really you know to your community but I think that reaches out to that, you know, are you a good neighbour or are, you know, we all know conversations that schools will sometimes have that will say, oh, your child's got special needs. Well, X school is an expert on that. Yes. I, I, you know, yes. we, we're probably not the right provider for you. And so on you go to X school, um, which you know may, maybe it's them being neighborly but <laughs> maybe the you know it is for an ulterior motive and yeah. and it is that i i remember a conversational you've you've just prompted me with it frank a good maybe 15 years ago with a director of education who was speaking about an outstanding school in the area where we live and and I said, oh, you know, how, how have they got there? And he said to me, yeah, they've got there, but what have they done for anyone else to get there? And I thought that was really, you know, that was interesting at the time because that put that seed in my head, actually, that, you know, in governor's meetings or anything, are we sitting thinking what is the impact of our decision on our neighbours? And, you know, that is really important, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I can just chip in. So I think it'd be yes. brilliant sort of setup where everybody helps their neighbours. I mean, that is the absolute ideal, isn't it? And within a community that you're all sort of working together for the benefits of that community and each other within that community, which I think is amazing. I, I just um, what I've only been talking there, Susan, I'm just reflecting on uh, my husband and I are members of an organisation called YPO, Young Presidents Organisation. Okay. Um, and within that organisation, it's, it's basically an, an organisation for CEOs, um, a sort of club because CEOs find themselves in very similar sort of yes. position you know often they can't talk to their colleagues about certain things because those colleagues are involved in those things or whatever it is they're confidential or whatever um, and so having a connection with other CEOs in non-competing businesses is very very useful indeed in this sort of confidential environment and I just wonder whether something I mean I tend to go into fixer mode I don't really want to do that but you know I wonder whether there is some scope for that where you just connect people because as soon as you connect people on a human level you all have things to share. You all have things to kind of unburden. And yeah. that, that real opportunity where it's confidential, you know, it's not going to go any further that you can then share that with other colleagues who perhaps you never see or that otherwise they're not part of your community. Obviously, if they are, then, then, you know, brilliant. But there's an extra dynamic there. But here, you know, you'd have people who are not necessarily connected and just able to empathise, share, unburden, as I say. And having that outlet is, I think, incredibly useful. I, I agree. I mean... Those, um, we're, I'm looking at the moment to try and secure a residential for secondary head teachers in Blackpool. And they haven't had one for, well, I, I, they didn't have one obviously during COVID, but they, they, they didn't have a tradition of having one before COVID. But there's something a bit like the point you're making, um, Susan, that at the times, you know, you can say, well, it's a bit of a swanny, isn't it, really? You know, an overnight somewhere, I'm sure you'll be in the bar, you know. But but in a way, some of those, uh, you know, I'm not suggesting anyone gets <laughs> uh, drunk or anything like that. But some of those informal discussions yeah. that you have, you know, are the sorts of things that begin opening up telephone number sharing, which mean that somebody, you know, I, I felt as I connected with you. Can I just have a word? You know, 
it's these sorts of things that I think we've perhaps ignored. And it may be the mental health element here that we haven't supported it well enough post COVID. But I feel that now. I feel as though people are ready to to be much more brutally honest about stuff. And the the head teacher's example, the sad story there is is you know brings it all to a head really in terms of you know if you've got a problem you you really do need to share it with somebody yeah. you can trust. That's it. Having that space to do that, I think, yeah. is very important. Yeah. And what's caught your eye this week? So um, what caught my eye was um, the release of some government data which showed that nearly two out of five uh, disadvantaged children were now, well, from a report last year, so 21, 22, um, persistently absent um, still in school. And this is very much mirrors what we see in tutoring day to day week to week you know conversations with heads and senior leaders is about how difficult it is to you know get students to come back and attend you know even now the various reasons illness ongoing this whole thing about Fridays and working from home parents you know it's easier for, for children to stay off um so Susan I'm going to hand over to you because I know you've got direct experience of this <laughs> Yeah, well, um, you know, in in my schools, it 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 is a huge it is a huge issue, and I know that um, we've we've had people come into both schools to to look at what we're doing, and um, we're probably doing every, everything that you can. Um, in in my primary, we're looking at um, you know, offering free breakfast club to children who um who aren't attending um, uh, to, tr- to try and encourage them in. Um, this, un- unfortunately, it hasn't been taken up by lots of families. Um, when we when we dig a bit um, further down to see why, it can sometimes be that Breakfast Club starts too early for the family. And so that, that's in, an even bigger barrier. Um, we've also, uh, where, where we have... Um, seen some successes has been actually um, a child that was um, old enough to walk on their own to school and so um, now was getting themselves up and out without any parental involvement and we're really really pleased with that but we can't you know we can't be asking the four-year-olds to come in (laughs) on their own but but it's really good and I and I believe that this this um, student you know when attendance was celebrated with her class um has said oh you know it wasn't me this week that that you know that that meant we didn't win the prize um you know hopefully you would like to think that you know an engaging curriculum and things would mean that children wanted to be in but in a lot of cases we're penalizing children because of parental um behaviors yeah Yeah, that's this sort of issue around um attendance awards particularly you know i mean we've got um we've got two um, grandchildren at primary school living with us at the moment uh, one whose attendance is virtually 100 percent, and the other one who um has you know, as uh, Anne was saying before had been ill yeah you know her attendance was something like 91 percent or something but it wasn't the fact that she didn't want to go to school you know yeah. um, it was just that she was not well and and, and I, I I I'd be very very sad if there were awards being given either to classes um for good attendance or for individuals for good attendance when in fact it would be that child who perhaps brought the school the class attendance down through no fault of her own 
or also, you know, was penalised for the fact she'd been ill, genuinely ill. You know, I just don't think there's enough thought given to the circumstances around some of this stuff. Uh, um, yeah. I think you may have worked well in, in previous times, but unfortunately, when you've got we're COVID, not, of massive you know, yeah. affection yeah. of attendance, but then the ongoing lack of immunity to diseases, bugs and things that are going around, you know, it's it's something which is very much ongoing. I think we've all seen the lurgy going around, you know, over the last few months and that really hitting people low. I mean, you know, um, from my own business, I never take a day off work, but I had a day off. <laughs> so it was really serious. <laughs> I, I think one of the things I, I want to move on because we're, we're going to run out of time. But the one point I want to say is that the, the narrative around this is as if the schools are to blame. You know, I feel as though we've got yeah. to be very, very careful here about where you know where the responsibility for this lie it, it it rests in a number of areas you know and it would be wrong for the schools again to take full responsibility for all this which i, I sadly think is where some of the the politicians are pushing this because it's easier to do that rather than consider well did we actually invest enough in yeah. in the sorts of support mechanisms we're going to need post covid i think yeah the Kevin Collins 15 billion seem to disappear and all we've got yeah. is a little bit of the tutoring left isn't it really and and I think that in the schools you know I you know I genuinely can hold my hand up and say that my schools are doing absolutely everything that they could do however there are no services around them that 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 would have also you know they are being social services they are being the ewo they're being the mental health service yeah that's it that you know all of that is is on um the school now and um you know they they can't be all of it (laughs) (laughs) well uh, what's caught my eye I'll, i'll make this fairly brief is um the at last the falco skit ofsted report has now been published and there's an article in Schools Week this week where uh, this was used as one of two examples of a of a skit that has performed really, really well under the Ofsted framework and has not been re-accredited. So that means to say under these IT um, proposals, uh, it will no longer be providing teachers for the Fylde Coast and Blackpool. And so um, senior leaders in Blackpool are aware uh, of two things. First, that the skit provides really good teachers. And secondly, we don't know who's going to fill the gap. So we can see this sort of like um, recruitment crisis happening nationally, <clears throat> but biting most particularly in an area which is at times quite difficult to attract uh, teachers to. And uh, so really just a shout out to Ali Spencer, who is basically running the skit and, and is amazing. Um, and and actually a, a real, you know, sort of, We've dealt with this a number of times on this chat, but we could see this problem occurring. And actually, there's been insufficient support post that decision to ensure that everybody knows, because I can't tell you where those teachers are going to come from. And so we are now starting to worry. I wouldn't say panic, but worry about what, you know, what will happen. And we're, we're trying to do work with schools to sort of help them recruit more teachers from further afield, to be honest, um, to come and relocate in the northwest um but in a way that's not really sorting the problem it's just taking you know, the neighborliness of it isn't very good is it because we're taking them away from somewhere else, you <laughs> somewhere know? But, else but actually yeah. you know we we're, we have no we have no other way of doing it because we don't have now that local provider in that way yeah um anyway um Anne, 
what what are you going to bring to us today as the <laughs> one thing you would provide or you'd want to see change that might improve the uh, education system? Okay, so I mean, I, a million ideas pop into my mind when that happens. But yeah, I mean, I had to narrow it down to one, but it's one that which has stuck with me for a number of years now. And it, I became aware of it because um, I went to, again Teach First link here. So um, I managed to get onto a Teach First event that was happening, which was showing a film of this uh, in practice. And basically, it's project based learning. And then this may be something which is very, very well sort of known and considered. But it is I, in the primary sector because it's how we used to teach um, yeah. before subject people got involved. And I'm not making a judgment on either side of this, but yeah, but it, it, it is more of a primary based approach. But go on. So I've seen this um, film about a school called High Tech High at secondary level in the US. And it just looked like this idyllic place. I mean, it was so inspirational. And the things that were different about it, so this is not a, 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 any sort of comments on qualified teachers, I love teachers, but it was taking people from the community to come in and be teachers, people who wanted to come and teach right. in their area, um, in their field of expertise, sorry. And, you know, by doing that, you really engaged people who were just passionate and had all this experience from elsewhere that they were bringing in. Um, the assessment was all around community. So the, the children would go and make a project which involved a number of different skills in order to bring that together. And they worked together on it pretty much full time. Well, they might have been working on a couple at once, um, but they basically worked on these projects. And then the assessment was an open evening for the community to come in and kind of pass judgment yeah. on it. And then they had to present about what they were doing and that sort of thing. I know it's very difficult. I know it's magic one time, but and you can't change things like that overnight. But seeing how engaged students were in what they were doing because they had a voice in, in what they were doing and they had the ability to give it direction and they were working with people who were not bothered about exams and they were just enjoying the development process of the project. Oh, it was, it was just fabulous. Wow. You've got <laughs> me going. Well, I was a head of Lower Park Primary School in Poynton um and in i think it was 2000 we won the school's curriculum award and uh i remember going down to uh london um with a couple of the pupils and uh barbara chadwick the teacher who led on this but basically the school's curriculum award was just that it was about how are you using your community and all its resources to to give young people a better understanding of their place and that's the starting point for your experience. You know, at the moment we have, I mean, I was talking to a colleague about this recently, you know, we seem obsessed with kings and queens <laughs> in in history, you know, but actually uh, I visited a school, one of the co-op academies in Stoke, and the, the, the uh, one of the year eights had absolutely no idea the pottery industry was central to the development of where he lives. And he'd, he'd been brought up in a primary school yeah. And then two years into the secondary school, had no idea of his place, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, when you think about the point you're making, there are ceramic businesses in Stoke who should be crawling all over that school, shouldn't they? And the school should yeah. be crawling all over those businesses because that's a central part of the place in which they live. And, the, you know, there's still the remains, sadly, you know, under-resourced, under-used of the kilns that were used around Tunstall and Burslem in Stoke. And, and children walk past those, possibly with very little idea about why they're there. Why aren't they being used? You know, it's all of that. It's honestly that that for me, yeah. if we could get to that and that would be absolute nirvana. 
this is the future. This is our, if everybody yeah. sees education, saw this film, we'd all decide the same thing overnight. Yeah, the problem is there are these subjects. Uh, I think we underestimate when you're not in central, uh, in in terms of a national education system, the power that subject associations have on the curriculum is very very powerful it's it's gripping and certainly at the moment with the certainly since 2010 they have got a vice on the curriculum you know they 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 worry about your that approach because well the the first thing is where's the history going to come in when are they going to hear about henry the (laughs) eighth you know these are the sorts of things that concern them and of course we can't answer that but this is a brilliant thing. I mean, they did they, one of the projects they were doing was about Greek history. Oh, right, right. And they had to do it via a play. So it was all about writing um, the play and the thing. Yeah. It was depth. It wasn't breadth in quite the same way. They accepted that. It was depth rather than breadth. But the brilliant thing is if you teach people how to do things in a deep way, they can go do anything they want to, any direction in a deep yeah. way. And yeah, yeah. you don't need to do it all under observation. You can just go and then be interested and know how to get into things in a deeper way. Um, so I thought it was fantastic. The other thing I would, if I had one, one, one. Because no, we'll yeah. you're such a good guest, will yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> one final thing that I would change, uh, this would be a really quick fix, would be to somehow change the word maths into problem solving throughout all education. The word maths has such, I mean, I'm a maths teacher, I love maths, don't get me wrong. And maybe at the very high levels, you keep it as maths for the real sort of, you know. But, you know, it puts so many people off something that they can do so easily. It just needs a complete rebrand. Math needs a rebrand. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm I'm a maths graduate and, and I um, always say to people, like, it's not maths for maths sake. It's maths so that you can go out and solve problems in the world. And, and that that is the most important. It's those skills that you learn. And I and I do think um, to to get away from that. Oh, I can't do maths. Well, you can because you do maths. You solve problems every day in your life. When you get on a bus, when you do this, when you do that, you you can't you can't not do maths. And I do have a bit of a thing. You don't have people going around saying I can't do English. No. <laughs> so, I think, uh, yeah, in year four, uh, they have a got to get it right it's a sort of a multiplication assessment uh, it's not mm. a, a check yeah, or the yeah check. times table a lot of children who can't do their tables quickly mm. don't perform well in that assessment in that check and there and that's when the die is beginning to be cast as yeah, to yeah. well i'm not a good mathematician then am yeah. i yeah because other people can do it yeah well they're, yeah. they're the mathematicians yeah, yeah. it's it's yeah. very sad yeah. anyway what an interesting chat. <laughs> uh, Stan, we have missed you, but perhaps not as much as you wish we had. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. But thank you, Anne, for yeah. joining us again. And we'd love to have you back again. Uh, uh, it'll probably be next year because we're lined up with guests up until now, October. Uh, and thank you again, Susan, for stepping in. And uh, I know there are a couple of weeks actually coming up where I'm not available. So it might be the uh, Stan and Susan show. But anyway, <laughs> OK, well, thank you, everybody. Yeah. Have, a, have a great week. And uh, our thoughts are with the, the head teacher of the primary school who sadly um, committed suicide. And uh, it's, it's, it, it's a, a sombre note to finish on. But I think it's one that we do need to remember frequently that it's a hell of a difficult job being a head teacher. Yeah. So see you all next week. Thanks very much. Bye now.